Welcome to Irish Exit Everything. My name is Frank, and as wonderful as June is, with Pride and Juneteenth and the first day of summer, sweltering as it is, the end of June is that time of the year the Supreme Court really makes us grapple with whatever new hellscape we'll have to endure as their iron gavel descends upon us. You know, June 24th marked one year after the court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and strip away federal protection for abortions. And I've talked about this before, but essentially that decision came down to control. It's about forcing people who can get pregnant into economic dependence, either dependence on their own job or dependence on someone else who is working, because having a kid is really expensive. And we're certainly not going to get any child care support from the government. I mean, child poverty rates spiked drastically after they ended the child tax credit. Over 11 million kids live in poverty in the U.S. That's not okay. So by forcing you to have a kid, they're also forcing you to clock in for a wage that isn't livable. So maybe even your kid has to clock in too, which is exactly what the billionaires want, a precarious labor force that they can exploit to generate profits for them. So that's why SCOTUS made that decision on abortion. And since then, it's been pretty fucking horrible, which was predictable. Millions of people live in a state where abortion, a vital healthcare service, is simply not an option. At least not a legal and safe option. And, you know, some of the worst people on the right don't even want to stop there. Before the Dobbs decision, they argue that the legality of abortion should be decided in each individual state. And that'll be the end of it. Just leave it up to the states. And that's not at all reassuring or helpful to folks who need that health care and just happen to be living in a state where there's an abortion ban. Right, and may not be able to afford to travel to a different state where they can get a legal and safe abortion. But if that wasn't bad enough... Now we've got geriatric dog turds calling for a federal 15-week abortion ban. Because leaving it up to the states means that some states will actually vote to protect abortions. And the right wing just can't accept that. And so this new tactic, or rather the same old assault and the fresh coat of paint, is in part thanks to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, which opened the floodgates in a way. And because of all that, the wildly unpopular Dobbs decision and the serious harm it's caused, and will continue to cause, Confidence in the Supreme Court has fallen to a 50-year low, and there have also been questions about ethics in the court, which shouldn't be a surprise. What? A branch of the government might be corrupt? Shocking. Some folks may not care about how these judges conduct themselves, but it does have serious implications on how we live our day-to-day lives, like what we're seeing with the Dobbs decision. So at a time when trust in the court is so low, they had to do something to regain some semblance of legitimacy, right? Because they want people to stop calling to abort the court. There was a big concern last year when the court temporarily reinstated a racially gerrymandered congressional district map in Alabama, at least until after the 2022 midterms, that they were coming for the Voting Rights Act because they attacked it before, back in 2013, when they struck down Section 5. Basically, that section had required states with a history of discrimination to get permission from the federal government before changing their election laws, you know, to make sure it wasn't racist. But SCOTUS basically told those historically racist states back in 2013, y'all are good to do whatever, just don't be racist, okay? But since that decision, those states have been making explicitly discriminatory changes, like closing polling stations in marginalized communities or racially gerrymandering voting districts. Now, these changes are still subject to review after they're made, if someone complains that they're discriminatory, because Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act still stands. But that takes time, and they're often not reviewed until after the damage is done, after an election is over, which means the states and local jurisdictions often get away with what they're trying to do, suppress votes during an election. So with fears of another attack, like in 2013 in mind, 
It was a pleasant surprise when the Supreme Court struck down the district map in Alabama and ordered it to be redrawn. And they ruled against the independent state legislature theory, which claims that state legislators can just come up with their own federal election rules without any way to stop them. They can still make changes without permission that ultimately suppress voting rights locally. That doesn't mean that state courts can't review those changes and reverse them. These are without a doubt important victories for our voting rights. But honestly, there really couldn't be any other decision. Did you see the map? It was very clearly drawn in a way to allow for only one majority minority district, when there could and should be at least two. Anyone with common sense would see that that map was racially gerrymandered. But common sense hasn't stopped the Supreme Court from making harmful decisions before, like attacking our voting rights. The Voting Rights Act may have been hobbling along ever since 2013, but SCOTUS would not have gone away with another attack on a fundamental civil right. It's sort of the same with the decision on ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. ICWA is important and vital, really, for preventing the separation of Native children from their communities by prioritizing placing children in the foster care system with extended family when possible, which makes perfect sense, right? But when the court attacked Indigenous sovereignty in 2022, when they ruled states can prosecute non-Native Americans for crimes committed on tribal land when the victim is Native American, this encroached on Indigenous authority on their own land, which is technically all land in the U.S., so folks figured that didn't bode well for ICWA. So the decision to uphold ICWA was a victory, but let's not give SCOTUS too much credit because that's like the bare minimum to say, hey, here's a native child in need of a home. We should make sure they're placed with a relative so they have some sort of connection to their culture. There's truly no good reason to overturn that. All it would do is to continue to undermine tribal sovereignty by taking the fate of native children out of the hands of their own communities. These Supreme Court decisions to uphold the Voting Rights Act and ICWA are hugely important. I don't want to diminish that. But they're also just low-bar attempts to regain some support for the court. So before you get too comfy, before you start to think maybe SCOTUS will actually defend human rights, they reminded us who they are. Within a span of just a few days, their fresh batch of judicial bullshit attacked people of color, indigenous folks, the LGBTQ community, and poor people. Let's have a quick review, shall we? Not long after the ICWA decision, they denied the Navajo Nation water rights to the Colorado River, even though the federal government forcibly relocated indigenous folks onto reservations, and even though one-third of the people living on the Navajo reservation don't have running water in their homes, the Supreme Court said, nah, not our problem. This illustrates that the legacy of indigenous genocide is ongoing by restricting access to their own land and much-needed water. And speaking of water... SCOTUS continues to give the bird to the environment and a thumbs up to private developers, this time by limiting the purview of the Clean Water Act and lifting protections for about half of all wetlands in the country. This is an insane decision at a time when climate change is bringing us the hottest days on record and drying up our waterways. We need to make sure everyone has equal access to clean, fresh water and defending the dwindling water we have left from private interests just like we need to defend all groups of people from all forms of discrimination. But SCOTUS says it's okay for businesses who provide custom goods and services to deny certain groups of people in certain circumstances, because providing their services would violate their free speech somehow. In this particular case, a web designer didn't want to have to design wedding websites for gay couples, even though nobody was asking her to. And while in the vast majority of situations, businesses can't deny service to people because of their identity, the Supreme Court said that because this designer would be designing a hypothetical website with their own uncreative messaging, that they don't have to design something that they don't agree with. It's free speech to discriminate, apparently, not hate speech. We cannot allow this to have a ripple effect into other services. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, 
for their grand finale this session, the Supreme Court inflicted serious damage on education by essentially ending affirmative action and quashing Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. So first, they ruled that universities cannot explicitly consider race when granting college admission. Now, this might be hard for some conservatives to believe, but universities are not letting people into their programs just because of the color of their skin. It's more so about the amount of green in their pockets. But some universities have tried to be race conscious because racism is a systemic issue, meaning you have to zoom out and look at how marginalized communities might have more obstacles preventing individual success, like a lack of educational resources that might help you get better test scores and whatnot. And there's plenty of evidence that there is racial inequality in the public education system, largely because of underfunding. So by killing affirmative action because they want admissions to be colorblind, SCOTUS shows the side of ignorance and harm because they want universities to ignore those systemic issues. And by quashing Biden's $400 billion student loan forgiveness plan, they added insult to injury and more injury. Because getting a college degree, if you can get into college, is how you personally overcome adversity, right? Unless you have to pay back debts your whole life. Over 43 million Americans with federal student loan debt were hoping for, and really depending on, some form of relief. It wouldn't have been enough, but it would have been something. All of our debts could and should be forgiven, but give us something because we're drowning. But we got to pay back our debts, right? Or else some rich folks are not going to get more rich as quickly. Within hours of the decision, Biden introduced his Plan B for student debt relief, which goes through the Higher Education Act, which should have been Plan A. And while that battle is happening, he also introduced an on-ramp to starting up our payments again, which is only necessary because he agreed to stop extending the payment pause during the debt ceiling talks. Let's not forget that. Because of that deal, many people are going to struggle every single month to make an additional payment on top of all their other bills. I mean, shit, we've been defaulting on our other debts while not having to make student loan payments. And this on-ramp doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that he's going to fight very hard to cancel our student debt. It also shows that he recognizes that we can't pay that shit, and we shouldn't have to. But he doesn't seem to have a lot of pep in his step to help us out. Guess what? We wouldn't need to worry about student loans or defaulting on student debt or who has equal access to education if college was free for everyone. It really is that simple. But that could be a whole other episode. The point is, this is the function of the court. The Supreme Court isn't a friend to average working people. They don't care if we don't have clean water or if we don't have good education or if we can't pay our debts. They exist to uphold the law of the land, the Constitution, which was written by capitalists to protect the interests of capitalists. Look at the Dred Scott case to uphold slavery. Look at Plessy v. Ferguson, which cemented separate but equal, but only the separate part was enforced. Look at Citizens United, which allowed corporations to throw an endless amount of money into elections. And now look at the string of harmful decisions recently and what they're looking at for next year. They want to strike down any potential wealth tax. Who has most of the wealth in this country? Not the majority of us. Can we reform something like the Supreme Court to actually fight for us when at its foundation it was never meant for us? We can certainly try. We can try expanding the court. We can try adding term limits. We can try ethics legislation. Sure, why not? I think we could try to rewrite the Constitution entirely and vote on every section of new iteration after new iteration until we all agree on it, no matter how long it takes. But until then, what are we supposed to do when decisions are made that have a hugely negative impact on our lives? What are we supposed to do as our rights keep getting rolled back? We can see what they want us to do. They want us to vote. That's why they're willing to protect a weakened Voting Rights Act. But we know that our country isn't a true democracy, right? 
because both dominant parties are beholden to corporate interests. Corporations spend millions upon billions of dollars on campaigns and on lobbying to influence politicians. And the Supreme Court isn't elected, they're appointed by those politicians who are in the pockets of billionaires. The court has always been political. And even more direct than that, they're not an impartial group of judges. They can be influenced by their wealthy friends who take them on fancy fishing trips, right? So it's for those reasons and others that many people on the left say that voting by itself is not enough. We shouldn't stop voting. That's just where the ruling class wants us to spend all of our time and energy. Now look at what they don't want us to do. We can see what they're afraid of by what they attack. They lashed out at organized labor in the Glacier Northwest ruling, holding the door open for companies to sue labor unions more easily over property damage during strikes. It's still legal for unions in the private sector to go on strike, for now, but this is a scare tactic to stop us from even considering it. So we should always stand in solidarity for those who choose the picket line and encourage everyone not to give up in the face of these attacks. The ruling class wants to make it as difficult as possible for us to win. They don't want us to organize. They don't want us to mobilize. They don't want us to apply pressure and make demands. The wealthy elites might have the money, which is extremely powerful. But we, the people, have the numbers, which is more powerful. Because the people run this shit. And we can win when we disrupt business as usual. Out of the workplace and into the streets. If left to their own devices, the court will happily keep rolling back our rights. Because they're not here for us. Only we can take care of each other. Only we can defend our human rights in the struggle together. Thanks for listening and solidarity forever.